Please welcome. Welcome to another episode of Unmet Need, hosted by serial founder, CEO, Jeff Smith, your number one podcast for healthcare innovation. Jeff and his guests tackle the biggest problems in healthcare and share their experience building successful businesses in medical device, diagnostics, therapeutics, digital health, and so much more. This is Unmet Need, hosted by Jeff Smith. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Unmet Need. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. Today we have a very special guest and a good friend of mine, Dr. Chris Shimanov. Dr. Shimanov is a board-certified orthopedic surgeon and entrepreneur who has founded multiple healthcare companies that utilize advanced technology to improve clinical outcomes. Chris completed his residency at the Cleveland Clinic Foundation in orthopedic surgery and a spine fellowship at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Shimanov's PhD focused on the effects of inflammation on nerve cell function. He is the co-founder of Global Spine Outreach, a nonprofit whose mission is to save children with severe spinal deformities. He's also co-founded a number of other companies in the purpose of time. We're going to let him talk about it. So Chris, <laughs> I just got exhausted announcing yes. all of the things you've done already and still a very young guy. So first of all, welcome and thanks for being on Unmet Need. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeff. And, you know, as, as you probably are aware, physicians love to collect titles. So there has to be a long list of accomplishments behind all every physician's uh, name. So that's, that's joking aside. But yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I'm happy it worked out for the audience. If it's okay, can I use your first name for the oh, interview? Of course, yes. We've, we've right, known great. each other long enough. But... You've always been gracious about that. <laughs> respect. With, with, a, with a last name like mine, the first name goes, yeah, it goes in handy very, very often. Yeah, well, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, pronunciation of my last name, which has nine letters, uh, most of them are vowels, is, uh, has been challenging ever since uh, I came to the United States. I've heard a number of uh, iterations, so to speak. So I appreciate you taking the effort to, to saying it uh, properly. Well, just to set the record straight, we'd like to hear you pronounce it. Shemyonov. Shemyonov. Thank you. I've butchered that for six years now. My apologies. Seven, but who's counting? Yeah. Seven, all right, fair enough. Well, since we started there, when did you move to the United States? Uh, so the first time I was in the U.S. is in 1986. Uh, my mom was doing a hand surgery fellowship at the Coots and Kleinert Institute in Louisville, Kentucky. So I came uh, on a cold December day from Eastern Europe uh, to Kentucky, which in 1989 uh, was, a, was a pretty big culture shock. Oh, I'm sorry, 1986 was a pretty big culture shock. Then we came back uh, again to, to Poland, which is where I'm from, where I was born and raised, and then came back to, uh, to Kentucky again in 1989. So a little bit of back and forth uh, and then sort of spread out all over the United States from that point forward, essentially moving from state to state till uh, I, was, uh, I was in medical school. So in 86, you were there in Kentucky for three years. Uh, we spent about, yeah, about two years or so in, in Kentucky. My mom did that uh, uh, hand fellowship. Then we went back to Poland and, uh, and then, you know, sort of when the world was opening up with, with the Berlin Wall and everything coming down, uh, 89 is when my parents decided to, uh, to come to the U.S. permanently. And when you moved back to Poland, were you excited to you know, see your friends or were you hoping you would stick around in the U.S.? Yeah, well, you know, you're a kid, so you sort of kind of, they put you in a plane, you probably don't even really know what's going on and you accept things for what they are. I think children are more plastic. They adopt a lot easier, right? I, I had friends I was coming to. I had family I was coming to. It was, it was not a big deal. Not that I recall. And then once in 1989 hit, you were in the U.S.? Yeah, like, you know, like 
the world was moving everywhere, right? Every, like, uh, you have all the Eastern Europeans, Russians, everybody was, was coming to the U.S. And there was a big wave of, of migration around that time. Uh, so we, we were part of that. These things that happen in history that are unexpected or maybe hoped for, like the fall of the Berlin Wall, they become catalysts for change. You know, in your case, early on in your life, Berlin Wall falls. How did that influence your parents' decision to move to the U.S.? Sure. Uh, well, it's no secret that living under any communist regime is, is, is challenging, right? Uh, uh, for the very few at the top, it, it's probably, you know, worth sticking around. But for most of the society, the biggest benefit is, is in leaving. So my parents, in similar fashion, found much more opportunity. They're both scientists. Uh, and then they felt that, you know, they would come to the U.S. and sort of be able to pursue uh, their academic careers, which did happen. And then they did actually very well as a result. And I think most people that, that came in that same era also probably did not have too many second thoughts professionally, at least. Obviously, there's a, uh, there's a, and there's, you know, a price to pay in the sense of leaving family and then friends behind, which, which you sort of carry with you. But, you know, interesting, you, you say about the COVID and there being an impact, if you count during our lives, how many of these very rare occurrences have happened. It's, it's sort of astonishing to me, right? I mean, we've had 9-11, we've had a 2008 market crash, we had the dot-com bubble, we had the Berlin Wall. It's like literally every, you know, not even every decade, we have some major event that sort of never happened before. And we, we learn to, to get by and live with it and adjust. And, you know, I think every period after each one of those events that I mentioned has been sort of more positive and better, right? So I'm sort of counting on that happening here and, and then moving forward. Yeah, you know, often, Chris, you're kind enough to share a book recommendation with me and I try to send one back and you read probably five for every book that I read. <laughs> but I, I think one of the books we talked about that just made me think of is uh, The Black Swan Event. Sure, very familiar, yes. But the point you just made is interesting because in, in my career, I've been working for 20 years Dot-com was the front end of that. 9-11 came right after that. And then the 2008 financial crisis. And if, in fact, we're heading into a COVID-19 recession, which some people think we are, that is a lot of black swan events. Yeah, that doesn't make them very black swanish anymore, does it? No, it doesn't. And in that case, it's almost like a person, as we think about our careers and plan for what we want to do and the projects we tackle, it's almost like not if, it's when. Sure. And how is your plan going to be nimble enough to first endure the unexpected event? And then while everybody else is worried and retrenched, maybe you actually can advance and gain some, some headway. So the, this past week, this, the Vision Fund, which is uh, part of SoftBank, they presented their, their quarterly earnings. And they, you know, for the audience that doesn't know, they raised uh, the largest venture capital fund in history is $100 billion dollars. And they've now deployed all of that capital. If you take the number of days since they had the fund, since they closed, they've averaged $100 million of investment per day. But what i found really fascinating is they have this great slide deck. There's all kinds of funny slides, unicorns like falling into cliffs. But there's a slide that compares the degree of innovation and technology that you know, drove a large part of the US economy for many years after the Great Depression. Then after the, what they're calling the COVID recession, there were six blocks, right? So this is like visualizing where they see the investment themes and the biggest opportunities. And, you know, although unmet need is focused on healthcare innovation, that's not what the Vision Fund focuses on. They focus on Uber, WeWork, any, any type of technology business. 
But out of six themes coming out of COVID-19, telemedicine, telehealth is one of them. And I think that's probably going to be one of the areas with the most growth because regardless of the line of work we're all in, when everybody has to stay home for months to prevent waves of sick people coming into a hospital infrastructure that can't withstand the waves, healthcare is front and center on everyone's mind. Absolutely. And it coincides with going back to 2001 when the dot-com bubble happened and 9-11 shortly after. Most of the technologies, the underlying technologies that are enabling a lot of the telemedicine, telehealth, most of the important things that drive our economy now, they were just getting started. Right. People were just getting broadband. So interesting that we would start there. With that background, you get to the U.S. How many years until you settled in and said, this is home and I like it here? Well... You know, it's like I said, I had the advantage of coming as a kid, right? So I think it's it's just so much easier, you know. I, I think when you come in your late teens, uh, it becomes harder. I think when you come in my father's age, who was in his early 40s, it becomes very difficult, right? So I, I for me, it was literally you know, within weeks, I would want to say <laughs> I was probably not, my English wasn't great, but I was I was definitely, you know, feeling that. I can do everything I want to do. And it was, it was, it was good. Right. I mean, there are kids like me playing and that's, that's what's most important when you're you know, eight or nine years old. And so both of your parents as academics, did you have a natural interest in school and science and learning, or was that something you developed over time? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I don't think I was a great student. Um, I was definitely not interested in what was happening academically in school. I had my own interests, which were Definitely nerdy, but not in line with the school curriculum. You know, I was into like reptiles and lizards and then, you know, (laughs) some kind of machinery associated with tanks and planes and would try to spend a lot of time actually on that. Uh, Researching, reading, like doing things that you may consider productive, uh, but but definitely not by school standards. Right. So it was it was sort of a, a challenge for my parents to get me interested in school. Did they see at least the curiosity that you're exploring all these topics or did they want you to be more focused on getting A's? Uh, yeah, it's probably like any other parent, right? They sort of judge you like the school judges you for, for most of it. But, uh, uh, you know, they themselves are probably not super aware of the system here, uh, school system, you know, in, in, in Poland and Europe, the, the schools mostly focus on memorizing telephone books and <laughs> Very, very impractical things. And then you have to recite them, you know, which is sort of silly in the days of Google Assist and Alexa, where you can get all that information, right, without even needing how to, you don't even need to know how to read and write, you just talk. Uh, but, uh, but that's how school is there. And, you know, if you are not able to produce that kind of uh, content out of you, then you're probably not, not impressing many people. Uh, but, you know, like I said, I had my own interests. I kind of stuck with them. And, um, and, and, and things end up okay, but I'm definitely seeing similar interests in you know in our kids, and I think you just got to support them, right? Because you know forcing them to to do things is is not the good way to go here. And knowing that it ended up okay for me or other people that sort of were were doing similar things is is pretty encouraging. So you know, not that I'm some you know PhD on education, but uh, but I think it's it's kind of common sense if if you're interested in something and. You can pursue it, though those those pursuits can definitely translate and morph into something more productive and in the future as you grow. 
curiosity and, and being encouraged to explore things you're interested in for the love of the information. And to, that's something I value as part of my education. And I try to recognize that when my kids practice it versus I have to memorize this phone book so that I can get a 99 or 100% and an A+. Plus. You know, were grades something that validated you when you were in school? Uh, only if they were, would have been good. <laughs> Most of the time we're not. Uh, you know, I, you know, like grade school and I would say even early high school, I, I kind of did my own thing. And, you know, it wasn't, not that I wasn't paying attention. I was, you know, unfocused. It just wasn't, wasn't something that was interesting to me. I became very interested. I would say it's got like a late bloomer scenario. I became very interested in, in things that would make teachers happy and then parents happy, probably in my very late teens, early twenties. You know, I became very interested like in organic chemistry with, you know, when I was like 20, let's say 20, 21, which was a good time for that, you know, what, what I was trying to do. But before that, it was just not something that, that, that would find much time for me. So, you know, every, and that's the problem with the educational system. Everybody sort of develops at a different pace. And sometimes there's just not enough time or not enough room or runway, as you would say, for, for people that are maybe late bloomers or find those interests later in life, right? I think the nice thing about the America is that there's so many just avenues to get into things, right? There are plenty of people that switch careers, plenty of those histories, plenty of people that went back to school. I think, you know, once again, and that's, that's what's great about it, because in Europe, if you're, you know, 35 and you want to go to medical school, that's just non-starter. You're complete albatross, right? Versus uh, one of the uh, people that we were renting from originally uh, was an was a artist who in her late 30s went to medical school and actually became one of the first uh, Da Vinci robotic surgery operators in OBGYN here in Chicago. So wow. a crazy story, right? So yeah. that is not happening in Europe, right? That's just, you know, you sort of, your path is set. I mean, you go from high school to, to college, right? So it's just, it's just a different world. When I describe you to friends or people that we know mutually, you know, whether in the industry or academics, you're always the example for me of unbelievable passion, energy, and unrelenting work ethic. And <laughs> I've looked at my own drive and work ethic and sometimes thought maybe I should rev it down. And I'm always like, well, Chris works five times harder and is doing 10 times as many things. So you always make me feel better about working a lot. But where did you get that work ethic? And is that something that you saw in your parents? It's funny you say that. And obviously, I appreciate the compliment, but I vividly remember being lectured to my parents uh, pretty much as long as I lived with them that, you know, I, I need to like finish tasks that I started, that I need to be focused, that I need to do this, need to do that. So, you know, I think it's impossible to do the summary you gave me here. It's impossible to do those things and, and I guess put up that kind of a vibe if you're not doing something you're interested in, right? I mean, you can only force yourself so much. I mean, there's only so much pressure on you, whether it's from peers, friends, you know, parents or whatever, spouses, that can only go so far. Then you're just going to burn out and, and crash and burn. So I think if you find a niche for yourself, and that's why I think it's so important to, to let these, you know, kids of mine and everybody else's, I guess, to, to sort of find something they're interested in and not necessarily 
uh, you know, steer them against their passions because it's just going to be counterproductive. They're going to revert back to whatever they wanted to do eventually once they get out of your sphere of influence, right? So I think just, you know, having good habits uh, is, is, is something you can do for them. But, but you know, for me personally, I, I just really enjoy uh, doing what I do. I think I've been given uh, opportunities to explore many uh, fields and uh, found support for that exploration. So, uh, and you know, we're in healthcare. So, you know, the bottom line is we're potentially helping other people feel better, be healthier, right? So I, for me, that's a pretty big motivator if you sort of keep that as the carrot on the stick, right? That you're here and there's another person that's benefiting from, from your work. Uh, and even if it's just one person, right? So we don't need to, you know, we don't need to save 100 million people. If, if we help one person and actually you see that person, which is something that's unique to a physician, you actually see somebody you've helped, and, you know, you could have had a really bad week. You could have had, you know, plenty of meetings that didn't go your way or, or whatever. And you have a clinic, you see a patient that you've helped even a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, come back and see you and be like, listen. And you're like, oh, here they come back. And they're like, no, no, no I'm not seeing you for my back. I'm seeing you for my neck. My back's doing great, right? I know and, a guy for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, you know, it's, I think we, we, we are very, you know, fortunate to have that as a reference point. And I think you don't need to be a physician to be able to be part of that, right? I mean, the guys in the OR from the companies, the nurses, anesthesiologists, you know, anybody that helps is, is part of that process. It's kind of like flying a plane, you know, yeah, there's the pilot, but you know, it's hard to get off the ground if you don't have the control tower, the guy putting the fuel in the tank and somebody wiping that windshield, right? So, yeah, it's a it's a big time team effort, and it's really true in healthcare, right? And it's just such a intensive effort on on everybody's part. Well, it's a good segue because there is a lot of coordination that happens in your line of work as a spine surgeon and orthopedist. At what stage in your spine practice did you start to see some of these needs that became the passion and the drive to found Holo Surgical? What's the unmet need you're solving? Sure. So you know, I've I was always interested in technology. You know, I was always fascinated by people and still I'm very fascinated by people that have created something that other people use. Uh, not necessarily obviously in spine, whether, you know, it's a Da Vinci robot or, or, or uh, something as a consumer, like, like a Tesla car. It just fascinates me that there's one person who, or a group of people who kind of put it together and over a long enough period of time, uh, they had a product which was beneficial for for all, right? So everybody benefited, and that, that's just amazing. And that happens around us. Happens, you know. You're sitting in this, the heart of it in Silicon Valley, so you know it, it happens there daily. And uh, and some of those products are more more useful than others, but they're made by people. So I was always fascinated in healthcare by that. I also recognize that we're sort of antiquated. Um, as a as a as a sector of the economy, I mean things you know we do we've been doing some of them for 60, 70 years. If you take a um, the most common spinal procedure, a, a laminectomy, where we remove bone to take pressure off the nerves, I mean those instruments were invented in like in Germany in nineteen twenties, right? So and and they kind of look the same, and maybe yeah the metal's a bit better and the machining's a little bit better, but the principle hasn't changed. And you know on the one hand, you know you can say that's pretty comforting that it's you know we found something that works for that long, but on the other hand, I mean there has to be a better way of doing that. So I've always been interested in in like hooking up with people that 
have been very innovative and being a resident at the Cleveland Clinic, there was a decent amount of opportunity because that's sort of, that was that kind of a, a place where, you know, in the middle of Ohio, you, you had a lot of brilliant people that, that were actually doing quite revolutionary stuff and the institution supported that. So uh, I was in a lucky place from that perspective. They, they were doing a lot of trials and, you know, I was a resident in orthopedics and, uh, you know, a lot of companies would come and, and speak with the physicians there and then try to work with them. And, you know, those physicians were uh, the kind of people that uh, got younger, younger generations involved. And, you know, that, that, that was a good ecosystem. So, you know, I've had multiple interactions uh, in, in early on in my professional career that were sort of supported not only by the institution, because there was a pathway to, you know, get some support for your ideas, but also by, I guess, pretty, pretty strong mentorship on the on the doctor side or the physician side and on the industry side so there's a nice ecosystem there you know as as most people that that try to innovate you fail multiple times and I've certainly had and have and continue having and hopefully in the future will have uh, failures, right? Because that's if you're failing, you know, you're trying and uh, and some some of these things will work out uh, as they have for me, right? Some of those things work out years after you've thought of them and actually put them into uh, on paper or, or submitted some IP or even did some basic work, and did a prototype for whatever reason, it may not have worked out then. Uh, and, you know, in healthcare, there's a lot of reasons, like the regulatory environment may not be favorable, the, the money might have dried up, or maybe the materials were not ready, or, you know, or whatever is currently working is just too, too popular. So I've experienced that as well. But, you know, I've always been interested in, in trying to incorporate software and, uh, and, and some kind of, you know, automation into healthcare. And, you know, that's a big thing to put on your plate, uh, coming from the medical background where, you know, there's no coding class in medical school. So that's problem number one for me. You know, how, how do I get into software? And I always wanted to, but I, like, how do you get into software? I wouldn't even know where to meet engineers. Then, you know, your budget, like, it's not like I was carrying a, you know, a, a, a treasure chest of, of cash that could just hire people and start throwing money at it, right? Which is another problem a lot of people have. So you have a good idea, you know, you want to be in the space, you see there's a lot of, a lot of things you can do. And I guarantee you there are people that are listening, whether they're physicians or, or people in health, they're like, well, why, why are we doing it this way? And, you know, I think most of healthcare is like that. Why are we doing this? Why is my patient bringing me a CD with their images, right? I mean, this is like 2020. They're still bringing CDs. Uh, it must be the only industry for which they make CDs. So, you know, there's plenty of things like that and, and plenty of people saying, like, why are you doing it that way? And there's pro that's probably a good question. Right. Like, why are we doing it? And, you know, there's there's some explanations in terms of, you know, regulatory environment and, you know, the need to prove some of these technologies. But really, it's probably a lack of a lack of concentration and effort, you know. So we're, we're sort of behind um, other industries, which to me is a great opportunity. Right. So I think there's so many opportunities in healthcare. Uh, whatever the discipline and what whatever level you're looking at it from, when, you know, a rep in the OR through a nurse in the OR or, you know, somebody in clinic, there's plenty of these opportunities. So what, you know, what sort of my transition and how I got to, to hollow to answer your question is, you know, literally throwing a lot of ideas out there, most of them not being amazing, <laughs> to, to put it frankly, a lot of them being criticized, uh, mostly correctly criticized meaning that the criticism was 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 justified and you know but you learn from that right i mean that's kind of what i said about failing is if you're throwing your idea out there and you get a bunch of comments on it you know that's good 
you want that. You want engagement. You want people to try to try to you know combat your your thoughts and and uh, you know see how you can defend yourself. Uh, how do you I, handle the criticism? Oh, I don't pay any attention to it. <laughs> no. Is there any particular criticism that oh. is the hardest to deal with? Yeah, I think you know. It's, I think it's very hard to deal with criticism. I mean, there's some of these things you're working on for years, right? And then, you know, you show it to somebody and the guy like looks at it three minutes and just, ah, this is a waste of my time. And you're like, I just spent six years on this and you spent three minutes and, you know, you, I didn't even have a chance to tell you why we're doing something or you didn't even learn the whole story. And right away I turned you off. So, you know, that, you know, you have to have obviously have a thick skin, but maybe that person that I just described is actually telling you something that you can use, right? So that's how I look at it. I'm like, this guy just totally blew me off. I thought we had something amazing. Uh, we spent a lot of time on it. A lot of people spent a lot of time on it. We actually raised some money around this and we've been at it. And within three minutes, we sort of didn't capture this individual's attention. So let's, maybe we should change our approach because a lot of times that's that, right? It's just like, maybe your presentation is not great. Maybe you don't know what that other party wants from from the product you have designed uh and that while that product offers that service right so i think a lot of these things can be easily adjusted some of the things you may need to modify once again not uh, not not you know heroic effort but may require some some uh work and then sometimes the reality is you know there's no fit right sometimes it's it's great engineering but but nobody really needs it right it may be over engineered for the problem you're trying to solve when you take the product or service to, and this is my opinion, when you take it to the end user that you imagine, and then let's say a handful of them, and you communicate what you believe is the need, and then you say, this is my solution, I think that particular criticism is pretty harsh. Mm -hmm. and the target user that you're trying to solve problems for says, I don't think about it like this. And to me, that's the feedback that, is so valuable because you could keep going for a really long time and if there's not a problem or the problem isn't appreciated the way you see it. Where I see entrepreneurs and where I've made missteps is the value proposition made sense for the target user, but the investor didn't get it or the acquirer didn't get it. I think there's a risk when entrepreneurs have a solution. It's in a stage where you could get product market fit if you could just get to the market. Maybe a capital is your hurdle or some regulatory clearance. But the process of raising the capital, because like you mentioned, not everyone has you know, buckets of money sitting around. Sure. All of a sudden to make it a fundable idea, it morphs into something else. And be interested if you ever had any experience with that. Yeah, so you know, I, I think... It's very difficult in general to raise meaningful money, hire great people, and have everybody interested right off the bat, right? If you're, you've had a huge exit, everybody's heard about you, those, those problems do go away to some degree, but then you, you're facing some other challenges. But you know, for, just to back to, 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 to your point, I do think that one thing that I would do differently now, having the experience that I do, because you know, we've been at this for for quite some time now with Holo for six years or so. I would try to get in front of those groups, those stakeholders as early as possible, right? Provided you have the discipline to see it through because you will hear a lot of discouraging things, right? So get in front of the surgeon, if that's the end user, let's, let's assume it is in this example, and it's for us with, with Holo Surgical, but you get in front of those end users as soon as possible. You know, I'm a surgeon, which makes it easier 
to some degree to put yourself uh, as a customer, but then again, you become super biased and you're definitely drinking your own Kool-Aid. So, so some of that objectivity disappears. So, you, you know, you, you definitely have friends, right. That are doing uh, what, what you, what you are doing, or you have colleagues that are potential customers for you that will listen and then probably spend some time with you. So those are very valuable resources. I think the quicker you get in front of them, the better. Similarly with investors, you know, right now we're obviously in this COVID situation and meetings uh, are curtailed, but, but, you know, you go to a, orthopedic or spine or, or industry meeting and there are plenty of people that uh, that are in the in the finance world VC world that go there for that reason to meet other people it's pretty low stress you're not asking for any money you're just saying hey you know this is what we're working on mm-hmm. mind if I keep you updated and and then find out what it is that those people need from you right so you'll hear some things you'll hear hey you know we only you know write a check if you've had FDA and 10 million dollars in revenue well that's good for you to know because What's the point of you trying to get excited about getting in front of that guy until you do that, right? So I think the, 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 the finance people are always pretty good at giving feedback of what it is that they need to see to get them excited. And that, you know, lets you gain that perspective. The reality is the early money will probably have to come in from you. Uh, but, you know, I think if you surround yourself with, with, with uh, good talent for whatever you're developing, then, then I think the chance of, you know, collectively coming up with a solution that gets, that gets people excited is a lot easier, uh, especially if the perspectives are different, right? So I'm coming from surgery. We have guys that are coming from software that never been in the operating room, right? So talk about a total, you know, divide between our experiences, but they're coming up with solutions that you're like, really? I mean, that, that sounds like you've actually, you know, spent some time in the operating room, but it just becomes natural for them to think of problems in, in, in such a way. So I don't know if that answers, that answers your question, but I think, you know, the, my summary is, you know, you try to get in front of people as, as soon as possible, you know, they say in the, not in the consumer world, right. You want to get a minimum viable product and get it out there and try to get, you know, people to criticize it. And, you know, we're in healthcare. We can't get like a minimum viable product, get it into the operating room and start operating with something you just developed three weeks ago. Right. So that's a non-starter for us just because, you know, that's not how it works. You would need FDA, you need tests, you need animals, you need this, you need that. But, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't have a concept, you don't have a napkin or you have a sawbones model or, or something, some kind of a, a prototype you can show to people and s- see how they react. I mean, are you totally insane or insane enough where it may work, right? <laughs> right. It's a very subtle difference between those two ends of the spectrum, right? So, well, so if you go back to the problem that you were trying to solve originally, what was the unmet need you were trying to solve right. with Holo and were you insane? Yeah, well, <laughs> history will judge. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, I, I think you do have to just be very interested and passionate about something which to some from the outside may look like a bit of insanity. Right. But, you know, you need to be focused and then see that what you're doing is important, at least to you to begin with, and then kind of poison other people around you with that concept and get them involved. But for us, you know, what we were initially trying to solve is a problem of visualization. Right. So the Holosurgical is a digital surgery company. We're taking data and converting it into information. Right. And I'll talk to you about that a little bit later. But what our initial problem we were trying to solve is to show the surgeon the internal anatomy without making a cut on the skin. So not a novel concept. I mean, this has been reported, you know, since the 40s, 50s and 60s. You read sci-fi books from the 60s and 70s, and, you know, x-ray visions, very common concept that you just put some pair of glasses on. And you look inside the body and you see what you want to see. Right. 
right? So there's nothing, as, as, I, as you will agree, that's revolutionary about that idea. And there's nothing questionable about the need for that, right? So people want that. People want to see inside without making a cut. Patients don't want to be cut on just so the doctor can see what's going on, right? And that's <laughs> what do we do in surgery? We open things up and look, right? So the concept is not novel. The need is kind of there, both on the surgeon side and the, and the, and the patient side. On the surgeon side, because, you know, if you see everything, that sort of de-risks the surgery for you. It makes it easier for you. So I didn't invent the concept by any means, but execution, I think, is where you can sort of stand apart from, from other parties. And here's when things get a little bit interesting. So we realized a couple of things. You need to be able to teach the computer anatomy in order to be able to realize your original goal, which we did not have back then. We wanted to sort of display the anatomy, take it, let's say, for simplicity's sake, out of a CT scan and, you know, uh, use some software to process that imaging and sort of throw it there and match it with the patient's anatomy, which, which by itself is a big challenge. But in order for that to happen, several other things would have to have happened, which are totally independent of us, which when it comes to innovation, a lot of it is, is timing driven, right? And the famous thing is if Bill Gates was born like three years later, he wouldn't be where he is now. He'd be a very smart guy doing something else. So similarly with us, uh, you know, we needed a lot of um, uh, processing power uh, in the form of graphics cards. So graphical processing units, GPUs, and convolutional neural networks, which is, uh, you know, one of the things that sort of runs machine learning. And outside of academic institutions, you know, prior to, let's say, 2013, it'd be very difficult to process an image using these novel neural networks, uh, which, which sort of learn differently than, than what was the standard up until then. And, you know, we sort of were fortunate that other people developed tools that we could use to do what we do now, and no one else was doing it, right? So the, the competition for, for that kind of a solution was non-existent since, like I said, the tools literally became available, uh, you know, a year before, before we really started working on it pretty hard. So essentially what we were able to do uh, as a result of innovation that was independent of us was to create uh, models where we teach the computer literally anatomy, right? So you feed a CT scan of your body and the computer knows the difference between a piece of bone, a nerve, a vessel. Within that bone, it can label it. Just like you open up an anatomical atlas, the computer knows the difference between a spinous process, let's say, and a ver vertebral body or an aorta or a lumbar nerve. And that's what we start off because I'm a spine surgeon, so we were doing a lot of spine anatomy. But, you know, that technology is applicable across essentially everything else. So we've gone as far with it as teaching the computer lobes of the liver so that, you know, you can say if it's in the cotyd lobe or, or whatever, what, where is a tumor and what do you do with it? So once you teach a computer anatomy, a lot of things become available to you. And this is something we were not thinking of at the time, but it's very interesting about innovation, right? So we taught the computer anatomy, which allowed us to sort of realize our initial goal to control that anatomy and be able to project it. But all of a sudden you realize, hey, we taught the computer anatomy, so it's kind of like teaching a human surgeon anatomy. So once you teach a computer anatomy, you can teach the computer how to plan a surgery. You can teach a computer ideal placement of implants, whether there are stents and vessels or screws or implants in the spine, right? You can teach the computer, since we taught it anatomy, you can teach it to not do something. Do not hit a nerve ever. So the computer knows anatomy, so it knows what a nerve is. So you can teach the computer not to hit a nerve. 
So if you have a robotics platform, very popular, obviously, topic. Today, the robot does not know the difference between a piece of bone, piece of nerve, and a vessel. It just does what, you know, what the surgeon programs it to do. It's essentially a surgeon's programming. The robot, which, not to get into it, but doesn't really meet the definition of a robot, which should be an autonomous um, but it doesn't know the difference between the spinous process, the pedicle, the L4, the L5, the S1, or, you know, the a lesser or greater tuberosity in the shoulder, or, you know, once again, some loba the liver. So the, so if a computer knows that it can avoid problems or at least signal you have an upcoming problem, doctor, this is a nerve because I recognize it as a nerve. Would you like me to continue on this path? Yes or no? It's always a surgeon's decision. Surgeon's in the driver's chair. They have to sign off on the plan. But I do think that this creates a, a, an opportunity, unmet need, if you will, to prevent problems in the operating room, right? To prevent us humans from having a bad day and, and hitting a nerve, hitting a blood vessel when we were not supposed to, you know, or having that much better of an outcome by being able to uh, pick the right type of an implant for that patient, whether it's personalized in, this, in, in, the, in size and shape, but also whether it's personalized because it meets the density needs of that person, right? Because once again, the computer knows anatomy, so it can tell you what the bone density is in a particular part of the spine, let's say in this example, and then it can create a FEA model, finite element analysis model, to see what kind of stresses and strains theoretically occur in that part of the spine. All those things happen only because you taught the computer anatomy. And obviously, I'm oversimplifying some of the things that need to happen for, for it to work efficiently, uh, but that's a general concept. So our initial goal was to show you inside your body, but in order for us to do that, we had to do a number of other things we were not thinking about initially, right? That created so many opportunities, which quite frankly are much more valuable in my perspective than our original uh, idea, right? The ability to see into the, into the anatomy and have the precision of something like a CT scan, that's highly valuable and very interesting. And to avoid having to look up at a monitor and to keep your view in the, on the surgical site, I always thought that made a ton of sense, particularly mm -hmm. as more computer-guided surgeries enter the OR, more yes. screens show up, and it's just another distraction. Sometimes I sympathize with the surgeon, how many people are talking to him or her, how many things are beeping and how many screens to look at. But if I understand it correctly, you couldn't really do that important thing unless you had enough computational power, process all these graphics, that's the GPU constraint. Was that where yeah, we started? Yeah. Yeah. But then I didn't realize the neural network component of this. What happened in technology that enabled the neural network that you're building now with Holosurgical? Right. So, you know, it's a confluence of things. Just once again, I think you're sitting at the epicenter of it where there are very smart academics like, you know, at Stanford, but also a lot of finance companies that like Intel that saw the value of putting more and more and more money at making these processing units and the software that runs them uh, that, much more, that, that much more robust, right? And it's this whole concept from the 1950s of trying to recreate how the human mind perceives, you know, an image, let's say, uh, to uh, and, and translate into a computer language. So, you know, a lot of people don't really know how these things work. And literally, you know, you, you train this model sort of like you would train uh, train yourself. So we have a whole team at the company who it's like the data marking department. So I think it'd be interesting, you know, for people to understand how, how training the computer works is essentially you take 
the images and you hand mark them, which is very tedious task, very painful. If you can imagine that every slice on a CT scan and you know, some CT scans have 400, let's say slices, every one of those slices has to be labeled by a human being initially, right? Because that's how the training process works. So it's something that's super mundane, but at the same time, you need somebody that's super experienced doing it. Right, mm-hmm. so you can't just have you know somebody you know, down the street, a bunch of high school kids, marking <laughs> these up. Right, I mean you can do that for some of the other algorithms. So this is a stop sign, yes or no. But now when it comes to say, well, does the nerve stop here, and then what's the disc starts there, right? So so that was one of the challenges you need to solve for. But once you get enough of this data, and that's the question, how much is enough? And that's not an easy answer. Then you feed it into this network which is essentially a, a computer program that then just does a bunch of calculations on these, uh, on these GPUs. Right. And then you kind of verify your results and you know, the results may look great to the computer. You may have great scores, uh, you know, that reflect high accuracy, but then you give it to a human and you're like, Oh my God, this is, this is nothing but we expect. Right. So then you go back and you start tweaking the way these calculations are made, where you put more weight and emphasis on which parts of the training, what's more, you know, what's more important. And, you know, you have to prepare your data accordingly. So it's not an overnight process. And, you know, the concept of the network is there. Uh, there are a lot of networks available to people that want to get, uh, you know, put a company together and let's say get, you know, one or two software engineers and, and start playing with these things. There's plenty of open source networks that you can try to reconvert. But I think in order to be you know, super efficient uh, and practical, you will need to spend a lot of your own resources and time to design something that's pretty custom, right? I wanna make sure I understand this correctly. So when Google was, was doing Google Maps and they would go out and they'd send these cars and they were like trying to get video to actually map in the United States and then eventually the world, that was a really popular product. Right. And Apple did the same thing what Tesla then could do once a mapping environment existed. Tesla now you can go into and other cars, my car, if I back up, it senses something and it stops me. Yes. Something like autonomous driving, is that a neural network? Because they're, they're saying we're, I'm this many meters away from the, the car in front of me, or is that something different? Usually that is different. It should be the output of the neural network. That's what the neural network was used to train the car to do. The neural network by definition should be, I I mean, there's, you know, technically you can get into it and say that it can happen in real time, but you know, you should be able, first of all, to train doing things I just mentioned. So in in our case, it's measuring, it's, you know, marking up training the network. So if you're giving example of Tesla, so the Tesla would have to be able to recognize the difference between a stop sign and a, and a go sign. Right. So the neural network was used to do that. Right. And then you developed a algorithm. So then you have an algorithm inside the computer of the car. Then information is fed from the multiple sensors and cameras that the car has into that computer and ran, run through that algorithm. And then the output of that is drive, you turn left, you, you slow down. Could holosurgical be the neural network and algorithm that makes robotic surgery as it is today be truly autonomous with yeah, so the guidance of a doctor? Sure. So just, yeah, for, for disclaimer purposes, we always need to say that the doctor is always in charge, which is true, right? You, need, you do want a human in the loop, um, despite the fact you probably don't want a human for most of these tasks uh, to, to be executed. But yeah, essentially, that is the platform is a software platform. So if you use a, a robotic arm by like an OEM, right, and there's a decent amount of companies that are simply making robotic arms, 
what you're getting if you order this thing online is, you know, in your office, you'll get a robotic arm that looks super futuristic and, you know, has a bunch of mechanical parts and electric motors and, and you know, wires. There you go. There's your robot, right? But, well, the, that's the point. There's your robot. Like, why isn't it doing anything, right? Well, what drives the robot and the business is in the software, right? So how do you make that robot intelligent? Well, you have to teach it things. Now, you can teach it to vacuum your uh, room, right? So that'll be, you use an artificial intelligence, you know, neural network to teach it like the difference between long hair carpet and short hair carpet and have different modes for that and, you know, map the room and all those things and then sort of execute on that, right? Well, similar to here, we, we have, you know, um, a robotic arm, which, which is once again, just a mechanical device with a bunch of engines and, and cords and it doesn't know what to do. So we put it over the patient in the operating room and we hook it up to the bed and, well, it still doesn't know what to do. Well, it needs to be fed something, right? So it needs to be fed an operative plan and, and something to execute. Right. So the only way this robot will know how to execute the plan is if it knows where it is in space in a relationship to its target, what its target, why is it there? All those things need to be answered. And that's where the algorithm comes in. Right. So we would scan the patient in the operating room with a scanner. We would generate a file, a DICOM file, which has a bunch of data. Right. And then we need to convert that data into information. Right. Because the computer right now does not know anything about that patient. So that's what our algorithm does is actually highlights all the different things on that image, whether it's the spine or the nerves or the vessels or the muscles, then makes a bunch of suggestions that the doctor has to select. Yes, I want to do the surgery at L45, you push the button and the arm steers itself based on that. If you're using an arm, but you don't have to, obviously you can just make those suggestions to the doctor. Thinking of spine surgery, if you think of some of the surgical planning software that exists, you have a CT scan. Yes. You have this software that allows you to simulate what a surgery could do and you're able to you know, look at the anatomy and then plan what you want to accomplish. Maybe remove this, Yes. put something in a certain space Yes. With surgical planning, is it more taking the place of the algorithm? Is the surgeon actually, in a sense, writing the algorithm? Yeah. So, so in your example, where you have today, you download something and you get a ruler and you plan and you click and you move some implants in a space on your computer, clicking a mouse away. You're the neural network. You're the computer. You're, some, you're the thing that has been taught over years of medical school and residency to do this, Right. So, so you're essentially that that's your job. That's the surgeon's job. That's what a surgeon's job has been in the 21st century, right? I mean, that's sort of what you were taught to do. And that's what you do. But there's absolutely no reason in 2020 that you have to do the clicking that you have to do the recognizing. all you have to do because we've proven that you can't that's that's all you have to do is sign off on the plan right so that plan gets generated for you so you have more time to you know see more patients or do more surgery relax with your family right because right now planning takes time, right? That's just, that's just what it is, right? You have to go somewhere, load the data, look at it, uh, think about it. And, you know, that takes time. And if you do, you know, 10 procedures a week, or some people do more, some people do maybe less, but that's still, you know, that's even if it's 10, 15 minutes per patient, you know, that, that turns into hours that you're spending doing a task that can be performed by a computer. Right? And the neural network has the network's effects that the more it's used, the more information goes into it. And yes. It does, whereas the surgeon, even with someone as well-trained as you, your plan is going to be influenced by what you were taught, what you've read at journals, what you've heard presented at meetings with a high, heavy bias towards what you've done before that worked. 
for sure. I'm not, yeah, I'm not benefiting from other people's experiences at all. Right. And we all know there are amazing doctors out there that are very busy, that see a lot of pathology and they're doing a great job. And there's no way for me to benefit from that right now. I mean, I can watch all their videos and YouTubes and this and that, but that's not the same thing as having the computer have that information over thousands of cases, thousands of doctors. I don't want to get into regulatory things, but you know, having an unsupervised network, which is what you're talking about, meaning you're just feeding a data and a kind of continuous on churning out results, you know, has some limitations from a regulator perspective. Also from, you, you don't want this thing to not be validated at some time points, right? Mm-hmm. So what we want to do is we want to feed it a bunch of information and we want to have some smart people that know what they're doing, test it, stress test it, validate it, throw it some crazy examples, see what spits out, uh, perhaps even do some, some type of bench testing and then release it, right? So you can still release these things, you know, every week or six weeks or six months or six years, whatever, but whatever your cycle is. But, but my point is like, you have something that's locked, that's been tested, stress tested, and you're happy with, and that's what you deploy into the field, so to speak, all the while you're collecting data and analyzing it and, and testing it against your current validated network to see if it's Absolutely. bad. Open source network for military drones would be irresponsible because the stakes are so high. Exactly. The same stakes in medicine and surgery. Right. So holosurgical has built and is developing the neural network and the algorithms that are going to enable this type of surgery. Yes, that's right. That's really exciting. It's very exciting. See, now that's why it's easy to be, you know, high speed all the time and, and kind of, you know, if that's your end goal. I think it's also easy to get other people involved, right? And this is not something that's only unique to us. I, I think just being in, in this space and there's plenty of room, like I, when we started talking, there's plenty of room in healthcare to be doing these things. And I, I think it's easy to get up in the morning uh, I think it's easy to convince people to sort of join you on this quest. And, you know, reality is even if, if it fails from a business perspective, then you still were involved in something very interesting and exciting, right? But at the same time, I do feel that there's such a need that you're limiting that business failure risk, essentially to your risk of execution and your risk of the regulatory environment. So, you know, while we, we're talking about some futuristic stuff, you obviously want to be within the constraints of what is allowed by the regulator, uh, you know, presently, so to speak. Of course, and the regulators protect patients, and that's an important role. I read a statistic today. It was about how many people in the United States alone have died as a result of the coronavirus, you know, right. somewhere around 90,000 patients. The point of this statistic, though, was that it doesn't put it in the top three. And maybe incorrect, and maybe you know better, but medical error is number three as the leading cause of death since the coronavirus pandemic in, in just the United States. And so it seems like... Medical error could be a number of things, prescribing the wrong drug, not knowing an allergy, but surgeons as skilled and trained and hardworking as they are, no one's 100%. And so if you have a technology that can reduce medical error, add precision to the technique, enable the surgeon to spend his or her time with the patient and less clicking on things, that has to have a big impact on not only improving patient lives, but maybe saving them. Right. And I think once again, this is this, what you're highlighting is very important. There's a lot of opportunity to reduce the error. Obviously, our goal is to eliminate error. Uh, but as long as there are humans in the loop and the, the system is structured the way it is, there, there's always going to be, I guess, uh, room for, for error to, to happen, right? So any one of the technologies along the spectrum of care from the moment the patient walks into the office 
all the way to the time they're, you know, kind of done with care. I don't even want to say discharge because once you're discharged, you're still under care, right? And errors can happen. Uh, there's so much opportunity for all of us to, to contribute to reducing that. I think it has gotten easier and easier for even very small teams, you know, one, two, three people to be able to come up with a solution that's widely adopted, that's not super complex, but really has an impact on, on, on cutting down that error. And just, you know, the access to um, computational power is essentially free, right? Everybody's got a smartphone. Uh, you have an idea. Well, guess what? You don't need to know how to code anything. You hire coders. You can do that online without ever meeting them. You just tell them what it is that you want. And for a very reasonable budget, you can develop a, a solution and sort of stress test it, show it to people and, and see if it's got legs. So I think it's super exciting time because once again, the need is so, so big, there are plenty of opportunities. It's not like you know, if you're doing artificial intelligence in healthcare, you can apply it to essentially everything, right? Uh, and it sounds like a very generic term and a very big buzzword, but but that's just reality. There's just so much uh, so much opportunity that I, th I think it'd be silly if somebody's truly interested that they don't you know try. It's like one of those you know uh, mottos that the the biggest risk is is not taking a risk, right? And and that's and that's very true, right? I think if you have an idea, what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah, well maybe you'll take a financial hit but guess what you control that how much you're going to spend so you know well, especially if your drive is coming from what you're interested in your passion yeah. to make a change and less about getting an a plus on a piece of paper right exactly before we move to the vault one of the things i learned sometimes the hard way as an entrepreneur when i've been focused on healthcare innovation where the patient is who i've had in mind from day one mm -hmm. i mean for me that's my passion and drive what I've learned in things that have worked better than others is when the healthcare provider, in this case, a surgeon, is really the person that's going to take that technology and really deliver that value. If there is also unmet need for the surgeon, you're helping two people. There's going to be a higher incentive for the surgeon to adopt the technology because it's going to make his or her life better. And you said something that a lot of people can relate to is you're busy. You have family, you have other hobbies and interests outside of surgery. If holosurgical can do everything that you're saying, think of the time you're saving for the surgeon. So not only can you treat and help more patients, but you can also go out and have a great life. And one of the, the headlines of the coronavirus crisis has been the brave healthcare workers. And you were, it was kind of you to not just, you know, to recognize all the different specialties as a world and certainly as a U.S., we need more and more people to choose their career in being healthcare providers. And as right. new technologies like holosurgical make that job safer, easier, more rewarding, less mundane on the things that computers and machines can solve, I think all of that is going to contribute to better care and a care that we can continue to scale that maybe now we have some limitations. Mm -hmm. Agree, agree. Yeah, you know, one, one of the things we want to really do uh, is, is sort of cut down the amount of nonsense that happens in the office before the patient gets into the operating room. As you know, and this is no, no cut on the insurance companies, but they do certainly take up a lot of uh, doctor's time, back office time in order to get the surgeries approved. They require a lot of documentation um, and, uh, and it's gotten only harder and harder and harder. Uh, and, you know, insurance companies, they're smart. Uh, they're using artificial intelligence to sort of 
tell uh, people what their opinion is about uh, how to how to uh, uh, take care of the patient, right? So there's always a very famous, you know, contrast between how a physician thinks about it, uh, how an insurance company thinks about it. But um, you know, what what we're doing is using imaging essentially uh, to uh, be able to help the doctor demonstrate the value of that treatment plan. And just, you know, it's not always surgical, right? It's you go to a surgeon's office, it's not like you're always getting surgery, you're getting a lot of other things like physical therapy, maybe an injection, or maybe just an off work note. Well, the best way to support that is in an objective way. So we all know that there's plenty of data floating around in, in physicians offices, you know, everybody knows your height, weight, you know, left leg pain, 63 years old, has diabetes. So all those things are available so that there's nothing novel about that. And I think it's very difficult to take that information, that demographic information, even that history information to prove your point, right? Although that is necessary, definitely a necessary component. You know, very objectively, you can tell from imaging what is going on with that patient. So you have to be able to quantify the image. And once again, going back to what we talked about teaching the computer anatomy, once you've taught the computer anatomy, you can make some predictions and correlations. You can tell which patient will benefit most from what type of a treatment, right? And you can generate that in a form of a report and you can do that very rapidly using a computer so that your back office, your PA, you yourself as a physician, don't need to spend the time proving your case to the insurance company, but you have an objective way of saying a person with, you know, a spinal canal of this diameter or, you know, joint space narrowing in the left knee of, you know, this diameter has been shown over thousands of, of, of cases to do well with this kind of a treatment. So that, that's sort of something I'm very excited about as well, because, you know, a lot of doctors, you know, clinic is, is, is very painful to physicians, mostly because of bureaucracy, not because of patients. If all I had to do was walk in the room, talk to a person, be like, yeah, I'm going to send you for physical therapy, or, you know, you would benefit from such and such a surgical procedure, or we talk about it, that'd be easy. That'd be, you know, that'd be enjoyable. But no, then you have to dictate, then you have to fight for it. Uh, you know, you have to code it, you have to bill for it there's really no reason why people are doing that, you know? So th th all those things can be done by computers. There are a lot of other individuals who, who are thinking about solutions for that too. So I think it'll only get easier and better. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting and hopeful time. Absolutely. Well, good. Well, let's go to the vault, Chris. Do it. All right. So the first question is, over the last year, I know you read a lot. What's one book that not only did it change the way you think about maybe your work as an entrepreneur or as a surgeon, but overall had an influence on your life and you're, you're still thinking about it today? That's an awesome question. So as you know, I love reading. For me, uh, it's been Lifespan. I was thinking about which book it is. So I've, I, came, I came to Lifespan. David Sinclair is a PhD, pretty well-known guy. He talks about you know, why we age and why we don't have to. And that just blew my mind. Uh, you know, I'm a physician. I like to consider myself somewhat of a scientist, but you know, I was embarrassed that I have not explored the concepts that he discusses, you know, uh, sooner in my life. And, you know, a lot of these things are, are things you can do now to sort of live a better life, which is kind of fun. It's not all hypothetical. The research he talks about that's going on uh, and, you know, the many, many, many brilliant people that are working on it. And, you know, that, that's on the research side. There's plenty of companies. There's plenty of money in it. So it's a very exciting, like, environment that I definitely want to be involved in once once I free up some time on my plate. But, you know, I'm glad there's a lot of smart people working on it. I, I just It's just so positive, especially when we're dealing with, you know, all this misery uh, from, from coronavirus, all these people suffering, you know, all the deaths that you mentioned, I mean, it's horrible, right? But just to have that sort of perspective that's 
that sort of very positive perspective of us being able to not in too distant of a future to implement some strategy, some pharmaceuticals or, or other gene type of therapies, which will be safe and will help us live not only longer lives, because, you know, who wants to live a, live a long, miserable life, but we want to live long, healthy lives. And that's sort of the premise of it. So, and also, you know, the book kind of makes you think about how you live life and, you know, that, you know, as of right now, you, know, you should, you, there's still a, a limit to how long you got. And so there's a little philosophical component to it, which I also enjoyed. So that's, that's my book for the last, let's say six months. I've been promoting it to everybody. Great. Thank you. So thinking back over your life and career, aside from your parents who, and, and their accomplishments, who's the one person that took an interest in you? Could have been when you were younger, maybe early in your, your uh, clinical career, but that just saw, saw some potential in you and gave you the encouragement for you to continue and make all this progress. I'll, if you don't mind, I'll answer the question my way because you ask like, who's the one person? And I think, you know, all of us have different stages, right? So it's like, you know, there's three stages to a surgical procedure. There's the opening, there's the, you're in there doing what you need to do. And there's the closing. So there's three parts. All of them are equally important. You screw up one, two, or three, the whole surgery goes to hell, right? So similarly here, you know, you're a kid, you're a teen, you're a college, you're like a young professional and you're kind of middle career type of person. And for me, I, you know, I've always had somebody for each one of those stages that was not a parent that a sort of you know, saw something, so to speak, or whatever you want to call it. But definitely, I probably asymmetrically benefited more than that individual, right? So I, I don't want to say I feel totally like a leech on this person. But I definitely tried to be a sponge. And, uh, you know, there was an orbit and things sort of, uh, you know, fell off if you were within that orbit and, 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 and part of that entourage. Um, and, you know, like I said, when I was a resident, it was a particular surgeon who was sort of, you know, super entrepreneurial, um, uh, you know, was always in very open to involving other individuals, not just myself, very collaborative, you know, had a good business sense, but at the same time did not screw these little people like me over uh, and kind of showed me that you can be successful and, you know, incorporate other individuals. Now that, uh, you know, I'm kind of like in this, this stage, you know, there, there has been a, a different type of a mentor, you know, for many reasons. Some of them are as simple as geographic, right? You've moved to a different place. You met somebody new. You have a different interest than you had before. So I think it's not that it's just one person I can say put up there. But, you know, I think for each stage of your life, there's somebody, whether it's a hockey coach when I was in high school, right, which has nothing to do with medicine our entrepreneurship although this guy just happened to be happened to be an entrepreneur now that i think about it but you know i was there for a different reason i was there to learn hockey and be encouraged and, and that right so i think just realizing that such people exist is so valuable because then first of all you know you're going to be okay because you know there's always somebody out there that that feels like that's their responsibility or, or, or whatever mission to, to help others. And then it sort of puts responsibility back on you because, you know, you are super busy, you got stuff going on, you got your own family, you got your own kids, but so did these other people, right? They're, they weren't there because they couldn't, you know, sleep at home at night and had to get out. They had other stuff going on, but somehow they found time for you. Well, guess what? Maybe you should find some time for other people too. And, you know, it doesn't take that much, but just include them and see what happens. And, you know, I, it's such a synergy. It's not like it was a unilateral one-way street, right? So I'm, I'm very, very like excited about 
finding people that are interesting no matter what their age is. And sometimes they have totally ridiculous ideas. They're like, wow, I wish, I wish I was like that. You know, and we, you know, I'm fortunate because we have a residency program. So we have a lot of young, very, very smart people that will, uh, you know, I'm, I'm questioning myself whether I was like this. I mean, you know, these, these people are blowing me out of the water and they're, you know, half my age. So I think it's very exciting. I just think that question is exciting because, you know, it just creates a lot of positive, positive buzz. I like the concept, the beginning, the doing what you need to do, and then the close. Yeah, three concepts. Lester Borden, famous, in my mind at least, famous the orthopedic surgeon at the Cleveland Clinic who did not use any cutting guys. There are tons of legends about this guy, you know, did a perfect knee replacement in a very efficient, you know, manner and didn't, you know, didn't make any mistakes and kind of a legend amongst orthopedic surgeons had his own fellowship, but he would teach these like very simple concepts. And, you know, you can make fun of orthopedic surgeons that they're pretty simple people. There's probably some truth, truth to that. But, you know, there was a, there was a, when I was growing up in Poland, uh, there was a very famous Polish soccer coach who won like the bronze or the silver medal in the world cup in the back in the seventies or whatever, back when they had a great team. And he would be like the guy that teach you simple concepts, like, the ball is round. There are two goals. He right. who scores wins, right? And like, that's the game, right? Well, similarly here, you can break everything down in simple concepts, something as complex as surgery, all of a sudden made you say like, yeah, if I work, you know, as I'm learning, as I'm a resident or whatever, if you're a rep, the guy's opening. What do I do when the guy's opening? The guy's doing what he's doing. What's my role then? The guy's closing. What do I do then, right? So just breaking these things down, is super beneficial because once we break complex ideas down, first of all, that means we understand them, right? And once we understand them, we can make them better for ourselves or for others. Yeah, you need to know what time it is to know where to focus. Yeah, exactly. So in building Surgical, there's consultants, there's third parties, vendors. Was there one problem that was really difficult and there was a particular service provider you think does a great job. Right. So I, I think that obviously the answer to that question a lot depends on your personal background, right? So if you're not a physician and you're trying to develop for physicians, you probably seek out physician consultants as a high priority for you, right? Just to, cause you have a lot of questions. You don't know a lot of things you then do them. So obviously we didn't have that process. Our unique problem was, and you kind of nailed it on the head is regulatory, right? Like it's this big animal, uh, that's, that's important, right? <laughs> every, every, there's so much emphasis placed uh, on, on a company's, uh, you know, regulatory pathway and clearance and the strategy around that, this and that. So for us, it's definitely, uh, definitely having, uh, you know, help in, in that domain that, that that's a big, big change for us. And, you know, you can hire very smart people. So I'm not saying you need a consultant. It's just, you know, if you're a startup, we're uh, essentially an R&D outfit. We have 20-some employees out of which essentially all of them, uh, but a few are, are engineers who are very well put together people, but, you know, they're not experts on, on regulation. So we sort of needed to recognize that that's our problem. So first of all, you need to know what your problem is, right? Second of all, you need to know when to tackle it. I mean, if you get a regulatory consultant in 2015 and now it's 2020, is that too soon or is it not soon enough or right? So we've talked about this when you, when you think about a concept, you know, it's very important that you know your regulatory pathway and you know who's going to pay for it or maybe you will develop a great product that doesn't have funding and doesn't have clearance to, to enter the market, right? So all those things I think are important. I cannot emphasize enough how, I mean, to me, it's obviously my eyes roll in the back of my head when I think of uh, regulatory work, but at the same time, I recognize that it's, you know, it's one of the most important things we do 
uh, for the right reasons though, right? I mean, a lot of this Q&A stuff is, you know, you're essentially forced to do the right thing uh, and and that's important. And is there one regulatory consultant in particular that you think does a nice job? I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to maybe give a particular company name. That's what you're interested in. Uh, we we're very happy with who we use, but that's not to say that we haven't had a good experience with other people. You know. Okay. And then, if you just think of all the great software tools that all companies have access to, what's one software tool at Holo Surgical that you found it, you adopted it quickly, and you can't imagine working without it? Right. So it, once again, a very popular thing is Python, uh, the computer language that helps with uh, machine learning, so artificial intelligence. A lot of that is, is based on it. Um, you know, the good news is other people are developing it for you. So this is a community kind of a thing that, uh, you know, is being developed uh, as you sleep or, or work. And you sort of benefit from, from a lot of synergy, a lot of brain power. Uh, and you just, you know, your role is to essentially have have people you're working with utilize those tools that are widely available. Most of them are essentially free uh, to uh, to do to answer those questions that you're that you're posing, right? So that's that's on the computer. You know, there there are multiple providers. The good thing about software is it's been around for so long, and there's so much R and D and capital in it that most of the tools are there. Your job is to put them together and maybe fine tune them for your application, right? Which is not to say that there's no uh, IP protection or opportunities of that nature, right? So, so I, I think you can use off the shelf. You can buy off the shelf software to create very unique things for which you have granted patents that uh, you know sort of allow you to uh, to to be the only game in town. All right, last question. We'll wrap up. What is your biggest unmet need as a business today? I'll have multiple answers. It's not, I think it's not one thing ever. Sorry. But, you know, first of all, we are living in very challenging times, right? So multiple businesses in healthcare uh, have been upended by what's going on, right? So we need to know where we are. And I think we need a little bit more time before we have more clarity on that. So we are not immune to that, right? We are in the business of providing software tools to doctors. Well, not for free, obviously. So those doctors have to feel comfortable enough and those hospitals have to feel comfortable enough to be able to allocate those resources, right? So so that's 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 one thing. Other than that, I think it's just growing the, finding enough people to help us grow, uh, you know, as, as we enter the market. I think it's easy relatively to find a couple of great people, but as you know, as your organization grows, it's, it's hard to, because you know, you have this culture, right? That you're not trying to disrupt, right? You have a pressing need, whether, you know, we don't have any salespeople, we need salespeople. How do we integrate salespeople with our R&D team? That's, you know, multiple books have been written about that in Silicon Valley, especially. So those are some of the challenges I think uh, and needs that we will have is to build a team that sort of reflects who we were for up until now and has the same, I guess, passion and desire to, uh, to bring our technology to the, to the user. All right, folks, you heard it here. Chris, thanks for going to the vault. Favorite book in the last year was Lifespan by David Sinclair. Multiple mentors throughout your life. Biggest unmet need at Holosurgical is finding the right people and regulatory is a very key service. So Chris, can't thank you enough for all the time. Thanks for being on Unmet Need. Thank you, Jeff.